Friday, and thanks for spending another week with us here on the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host, I'm Chris Henry from the EAA Aviation Museum. And we've got uh, our, our special guest, uh, Chris uh, uh, Jennifer Lavasser, is here from the National Air and Space Museum, currently under reconstruction or renovation. or What is the, what is the right word? Uh, our technical terms for it are a revitalization. That is the building project that the federal government is paying for uh, to basically totally uh, gut the entire structure and rebuild it as much as needed. And then the process that we are using as curators to uh, redo all of the exhibitions is called transformation. So we are transforming the way we present aviation and space history to the world from our point of view, from using our collections, and uh, they kind of work hand in hand. So, and that's all being funded by the public. So we're, you know, looking to find uh, help as we uh, do at the Smithsonian. Our exhibitions are generally funded from public donations. So we're looking to um, to put a put a, an account together, a bank account together with about $250 million in it so that we can put all those new exhibits in that space and reopen the building completely in just five years, five more years. We're a few years into this, so um, you'll start to see new exhibits opening here in just a couple of years. Actually, um, just well, it should be about a little over a year away. So we're excited wow. to finally get everybody back in. And I can tell you from experience, walking through a museum that is under construction is a really strange process. Uh, I've been at the museum for uh let's see coming up on 18 years and to walk through spaces that no longer look like the things that you remember is really really crazy um i've seen the planetarium without its skin <laughs> you know it's wow. kind of like <laughs> uh for as many times as i you know walk through that planetarium or past it it's really unusual to see it with nothing in front you know like you can see straight into it it's uh it's very creepy um, but it'll be safer. It'll be, um, you know, we're, we're taking all the right precautions. It's going to be a LEED certified building. So, um, we're going to make it sustainable. It's going to have all kinds of great systems put into it so that we can be efficient and, uh, modern and all those good things that buildings should be these days. No more squishy carpets. I remember. <laughs> uh, no more carpet period. That'll yeah. be a huge relief. Wow. Um, oh gosh. Yeah. Carpeting is a big no, no, if you can avoid it, it's cheap, but, um, it is really tough to maintenance wise. It's just terrible for, you know, foot, the foot traffic that we get. So we will no longer have carpeting. We'll have terrazzo floors. And, um, I think our, you know, special events will be better off for it as will the visitor. Um, I don't think you're going to be able to have gum in the mil in the building, uh, as has always been the case, but, uh, even if the gum gets on the floor, it'll be a little easier to clean off than it is, is to clean gum off of carpeting. Yeah. The, uh, I, I know you're going to keep that Tennessee marble on the, on the front of it, but the, uh, Oh, I wish uh, I could say that was true, Jim. Oh, really? Oh no, not, not my yeah. Tennessee marble. Oh, I know. Well, gosh. you know, to open and, and this is a, you know, when you see, uh, the process of, 
you know, budgeting for big projects, you see it in, in real time, in real life. It's it's always interesting to see the, the choices that you have to make over these things. And it could have happened um, if we were willing to swallow another $50 million in costs. Uh, and so ouch. to um, that, that quarry where that, that very specific, um, and it's not actually marble, it's um, a sandstone or something like that. Yeah. Um, to reopen that quarry would have cost uh, an incredible amount of money. It's been closed for a very long time, mm-hmm. and um, it, we the additional cost that that created was uh, not really very good. So not good for the project. So we went through an entire evaluation project, including um, input from the DC committees that are involved in this. We have a capital uh, the capital planning commission is involved, and there's an arts commission. They have to basically guide all of the um, things that we do in terms of architecture they they approve and um review all of the plans for buildings in the dc area and so we had to go through that process and we put out a bunch of uh, mock-ups basically and we all went out and got to have our review of them and think about what what was feasible what looked similar they don't want the character of the building to change too much because that's one thing the arts commission in, in particular is really interested in is maintaining a consistent look so for the most part it won't look a whole lot different um but that pinkish color won't it does have a a pinkish hue in a certain light um that may not come through like it always has so um, it'll be a little bit different but i think it's you know it's definitely for the best we'll have something that won't um if you look at any pictures and i often think of this when you see our building on television from drone or helicopter footage or in movies um if you ever go see captain america one of the captain america movies you'll see a nice shot of the building if you see it from the right angle uh, you can see how that stone on the outside was warping because it was old and um, it was too thin. And so this this will definitely give us an opportunity to protect the building, protect the artifacts better with uh, new stone that is of the proper thickness to really maintain the building in a safe way. Well, I'll, I'll take I'll take a deep breath when I walk in and just try to live with the. Fe- I got you know I'm an old I'm an old goat, but I just I, I'll live for the well, future. I will I will give you I'll give you one good bit of news. Uh, they are we are not replacing the stone on the inside of the building. So oh, the, okay. the, that 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 marble will remain on the inside as it is as it always has been, which is kind of a, a nice little throwback for anybody who you know has will have you know fondly recall their first time walking into the building. On the inside, at least, hopefully, it'll still feel like the old building. Yeah. Now, uh, what about the uh, Robert McCall painting on the um, south side? Is that that's uh, that? the two? Yeah. yeah. So there was on the on the south entrance. If you came in through the Independence Avenue side, which is also the side that the Metro would have brought you to, there were um, dueling paintings. Um, one on the sort of more aviation side of the building, and one on the more space side. And that Robert McCall painting, the mural called. Um, a cosmic view had been painted directly in place. So McCall, yeah. there are some wonderful photos of McCall actually in process, painting that on scaffolding, going through a very sort of Michelangelo style process of, um, of doing it in place. And when I went into the building fairly recently and got a chance to see the work, uh, the painting was gone. The entire mural mm-hmm. had been taken down and it was basically a very delicate process of going through and 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 um i i don't even know exactly how they did it if they took it off in panels but um the entire mural was removed for safety and uh, for its own safety really yeah um there's a as you can imagine in a building that was built in the mid 70s we have issues of asbestos that we needed to take care of 
and uh, there, uh, it's it's fine if you don't disturb it. But in this case, we had to disturb it, so we had to mitigate it. And um, that was a space that those walls were spaces that we had to take care of. So the paintings were removed, and then they'll come back. So there are things that will still be there that you'll remember from um, even the first visits to the museum. Oh, that's good. I, I could ask you a million questions. Will this come back? Will this come back? But I'm sure we'll all be yeah. we'll all be nicely surprised when we get there and yeah, see. Yeah, absolutely. See we want there. New. Yeah, we want there to be surprises and for everybody to be excited about it again. And uh, yeah, there. It, it, it. I think it. I think it'll make it'll it'll make everybody happy. I hope. Yeah, my my son who at. I think the first time I brought him there, he was three years old, and he always referred to it as the Broken Airplane Museum. Are we going to the Broken Airplane Museum? Because as as anyone who lived in the, uh, it, everyone who to this day lives in uh, Virginia, Maryland, or D.C., when you when you live in the area, you are the eternal uh, uh, tourist uh, guide. That and and to the point. Yep. I mean, I love I love going to all the Smithsonian's. I love to go to all museums. But when you live there for year after year, and people come in and go, "Let's go to the Air and Space Museum," <laughs> I, I'm on. You know, I, I can tell you, <laughs> I yeah. can, I can tell you what the captions say. But now, you know, there'll be a new thing, and it'll be a, yeah. a fresh. So I, I'm, I'm very excited about seeing your, your new take on all, on all of these yeah. uh, classics of American history. Yeah, and it'll uh, give us an opportunity to talk about some things that you know we, we wanted to talk about for a long time. There's been all kinds of developments that have been challenging to try and. Um, bring into an exhibition space and so one I always love to talk about is we're going to talk about um, the idea of globalization and what has changed what's been changed about our um, a world in the time of aviation and spaceflight in particular and so how is it that things like satellites and even airplanes um, and jet engines and um, having a space station, how have those changed the way we look at our world? And so big picture kind of subject matter that we then kind of pull down and look at some of the minutia, some of the little details, and um, think about it at a human level too. So it's a great opportunity is all I can think of. And, and we've often as curators referred to it as the opportunity of a lifetime, certainly, and the opportunity of a career um, it's not often that you are in a place like we are and then get to sit down and, 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 and start from basically a blank slate and a blank sheet of paper and um, kind of reimagine all of it. And it's, uh, it's, it's a challenge. It's a wonderful challenge, but it's also you, you, this has certainly gotten me to think about the value of what we do, the way in which we do it, the seriousness with which we take our jobs but also the incredible privilege it is to get to do that job. So um, I've always thought I was very lucky to be where I am, but I think getting to do this is, it definitely proves it. It's cool. You are, you are definitely the e-ticket of careers. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it's so exciting. And we're, we're going to talk right now about uh, one, of, one of those great stories that you get to tell, uh, you know, a, part, a part of the story, the, this uh, uh, travel to the moon, the exploration, and uh, dealing with, so many different problems just carrying human beings keeping them alive a quarter of a million miles away and getting them back home safe and uh, uh here we are in a minute 85 where uh we're dealing with the health issue of uh, fred hayes uh while he's uh, trying to figure out what's wrong with him yeah i was and, uh, I, I found this scene really always kind of interesting because there is a little bit of a through line in this movie of talking about 
you know, potty humor, basically. It's, yeah. you know, talking about urine and a waste and things like that. And of course, that is the question that is always asked by young children, especially when you come to a museum. So I well, appreciate it... the, mu- the the movie's <laughs> attempt to try and address that in a very delicate way. But then there's this indelicate moment that Fred Hayes has to have. <laughs> well, uh, well, let's get let's get into uh, the uh, dealing with human beings being human beings, or especially men being human beings <laughs> in this thing. How, how do you go to the bathroom in an Apollo capsule? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it, well, you know, it's um, I think we may have talked about this the first time it came up uh, in a previous minute. But, um, you know, there's a, it, it is there are kind of two aspects to this to keep in mind. One, you have to eliminate waste. Uh, human bodies create waste and it has to be gotten rid of. Um, and they had to have methods for doing that. And so part of that is just eliminating it. Part of it is also about collecting it. It's not, you know, something to just get rid of um, and and um, and get, you know, kind of send outward, which we saw you see earlier in the in the movie where they um, eject it into space, basically. But there's also the need to understand the human body's process and the changes that the human body goes through. And so astronauts going pretty much all the way back have had to collect their urine for testing, for sampling, for study. Um, they have to collect all kinds of bodily fluids and waste materials. And so um, in this minute, you see Jim Lovell taping one of those collection devices up to the wall with some duct tape. So your ubiquitous duct tape here, um, you know, that later fails because of issues of moisture. But, um, you know, they had to collect that to then be able to take back and and provide to NASA doctors and scientists to understand if there were changes that were happening in metabolism and um, other, you know, sort of the chemical makeup of the urine needed to be analyzed. Just like if you were to go in and do a urine test in your doctor's office in a lab, uh, astronauts were having to just collect that and bring it home. So not a very appealing process. The good thing, though, for NASA at the time was there was only one gender flying in space. So the only people you had to worry about trying to figure out for this process were men and so um, the urine collection devices the relief tubes and we have a relief tube on display at the Udvarhazy Center it's you know a very simple design it's sort of a cone-shaped device similar to what you would see on the um, space shuttle or an international space station it's sort of a cone shape and um, thankfully there's enough uh, there's enough of a flow rate, I guess you could say, that the urine will go down the tube and it kind of gets sucked down the tube and into the uh, system to uh, to go outside the spacecraft eventually. But these urine collection devices had to have a different attachment. And so um, in the you know delicate way that I often get to explain it to um, young people in particular is um, that they had a, a way of attaching the device to themselves. Um, it's a little easier when you're amongst teenagers, I have to say, because they know what condoms are. Um, <laughs> but it's sort of a it's sort of a condom with the end cut off, and it's just uh, attaches the astronaut to the device, and and that's collected in that bag, that yellow bag. So. Um, yeah, and I'll tell you this: that uh, latex does not survive over. Five, de- de- five decades very well. Mm. So we actually have little pouches of these um, uh, these little cutoff condoms that are kind of all rolled up upon themselves now. And these little, and each astronaut had to obviously have their own supply, which that kind of issue comes up here is that each one of them needs to have, or they needs to be, you know, they kind of need to isolate themselves. They don't want to contaminate anything. Um, 
so they have their own little little packages of these things that um, that they'd have to use so it's a yeah it's kind of an unusual um, way of looking at it and of course when women come into the picture in the space shuttle program uh, the thinking shifts entirely and uh, as many people know when astronauts go into space now uh, especially when they're wearing their spacesuits and during launch they're they're wearing essentially what is a, an adult diaper um, it's just easier simpler less complicated very well-known device you know there's no mystery to it there's no um, gender orientation with it it's one size fits all kind of a thing so um, we've gone from a very gender oriented uh, i shouldn't say gender a very um, sex oriented thing to uh, something that is much more ambiguous in the uh, present day so i think it's a lot easier on everybody from what even the male astronauts say <laughs> i once made the mistake of asking frank how he went to the bathroom in gemini and was horrified by the answer, and we'll never ask him anything like that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, the stories about fecal containment tend to be really, really difficult. Um, I tell this story a lot in the museum when people ask about it, when we this subject comes up, and people will say, you know, well, were there ever problems? Well, absolutely there were problems. There are problems when babies go to the You know, you have to think of it in very indelicate terms. And so if you um, – I remember this was probably – I don't know, might have been a decade ago, ago or so, there was, um, it was interesting to me at the time and still is that sometimes these stories of these missions, the sort of details come out in really like, when somebody's desperate for news, they're looking for a story from like the depths of the de debriefings and things like that <laughs> for these missions. So the fact that he mentions the debrief at the end always amuses me. Um, but there's a story from Apollo 12 that basically the poop was flying everywhere. <laughs> And this was big news about 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking that should have been big news 50 years ago or 40 years ago at the time. And um, but it's it's a very human issue. I mean, the, you cannot escape it. Um, eating, sleeping, pooping, whatever it might be. These, you know, are issues that we all have to deal with. And um, it makes them, you know challenging but also uh you know i think very relatable i think it makes astronaut life feel more like real life they they realize these are not superhumans in space these are real humans that have to do the same things just in different ways i i remember going to a, a lunch with an astronaut uh, event down in uh, at uh, cape canaveral and one of the shuttle astronauts who will not be named was at the space station and they said that um about half of all astronauts uh, become space sick, and it, it happens at at both ends. Yep. And um, when they're uh, you know losing losing bodily fluids and and solids, uh, it's hard to contain it all. But uh, thanks to the very uh, great ventilation system in the uh, International Space Station, everything gets sucked into a uh, uh, an intake vent. And mm -hmm. so if you if you lose anything like a pen or if, you know, if you're looking for a part, you generally have to just go to one of the intake vents and start looking for it in there. And uh, usually the first week then when uh, people are still acclimating themselves to being on station life, they'll be having these uh, uh, problems with regurgitation. Uh, and if you're missing any parts that week, you usually have to scrape off the, uh, the detritus of someone being ill or someone being uh, incontinent. Yeah. Um, 
but that's this no is, surprise. <laughs> it, it's just all a part of you know a, a part of humans in space. So we're going to have to. De- I mean, I'm sure when they're landing on Mars or wherever wherever we're going to, this, this is not going to be uh, easily resolved, and there will there will have to be new technology or the same old technology uh, reapplied. Yeah, it's a, um, an interesting thing I've heard astronauts be interviewed about recently. There's a conference I attended in the fall, uh, and the astronauts were asked about about just those things and what solutions might there be. Um, to start addressing those and thinking and planning ahead, basically, for, you have to remember, too, that if we're going to go to the moon like we did on Apollo, if we're going to go to Mars uh, for the first time, the gravity in those locations is not only different from Earth, it's also different than what it is on the way there. And one of the astronauts, uh, a Japanese astronaut, shuttle astronaut, brought up, and she's a, I, I think she's a medical doctor, she brought up the idea that one of the ways to maybe um, help mitigate not only the space sickness experience, but also the adaptation issues is to find a way to maintain a consistent gravity throughout the mission and so if you were going to go to the moon is it possible to get to space and have one sixth gravity all the way to the moon and back um is it is that something that could be done in order to at least maintain some level of consistency and maybe you know kind of lower some of that space adaptation syndrome type stuff that we see that really can be debilitating if you're a victim of it because it is very hit and miss and as i have heard and understand it's not always consistent even in a single person so you could be fine one mission and then the next mission it's a disaster um, and so it's all very, it's variable. Um, but is there maybe a way that, you know, on these very lengthy missions, there's going to be, you know, it's like eight or nine months to Mars. Could you create a spacecraft environment that was already at one third Earth's gravity? Um, so that maybe that would then temper some of those initial bodily responses and also make it a little bit easier then to come back and readapt to Earth's atmosphere when you when you get back because you've already had at least some gravity, the effects of gravity on you. Um, I thought it was an interesting idea. Uh, I'm sure a lot of the folks would really appreciate that not having to clean up after themselves constantly when, especially in those early days, it can be really challenging. Um, and yeah, they kind of get a they get a break basically, as I understand it, in the beginning. They they're, you know, if they're having a really rough time, they 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 get some space to themselves basically to not have to do any work just so that they can adjust. And especially for first timers, the adjustment to just being weightless is, uh, can be really challenging. And there's some great stories about that, especially in books like, um, Endeavor by, uh, Scott Kelly, hearing about him watching the others come on board <laughs> and experience <laughs> it, um, and then have to adapt. It's, you know, it's kind of, he's kind of just observing because he's just, he's done this a number of times by that point. Um, so it's just, it, it's fascinating to hear, those those stories understanding that it you know like i said it could be different from one mission to the next so you're just i think they feel lucky when it doesn't happen to them yeah and and, uh i mean we talk about things like uh this apollo 13 movie we talk about the issues about contamination and being you know infected but that's why ken mattingly couldn't go on the flight because they were worried about uh, measles cropping up in the middle of the flight and here uh fred hayes brings up another possible um, uh, disease that he could have caught from uh, from using the wrong relief tube. Um, oh, I don't, I don't know how. Yeah, not that the sounds, measles. Yeah, yeah, definitely not the measles. And you know, you have to. It, it's one of these, you know, weird. 
I often joke with my friends or I have some friends that joke with me that they know that I have my PhD, but I actually have a mug that my husband bought for me after I finished. That's um, one of those color changing type mugs. And um, at the bottom, it says not that kind of doctor. <laughs> and then, then the PhD will like will illuminate basically when it's got a hot, hot beverage inside of it. And, um, you know, I'm definitely not a medical doctor, but knowing what and having had children i think especially can prepare you for the idea of things like what happens when bacteria you know you get kids who always put their hands in their mouths uh. and things like that and we're going <laughs> through that moment right now with uh the coronavirus where you know having uh, being very sanitary about things is important and so the clap is one of those it, it, i think it because we've become less it sort of it reminds me, think, using that phrase reminds me of how people, um, you see it in movies a lot, would say cancer, you know, yeah. like as a whisper <laughs> or the big C or, you yeah. know, there's like a nickname for something because nobody really wants to use the word. Just like we have, you know, words in place of, um, you know, fecal, you know, we don't want to say that. So we have another word for it um, or bowel movement or, you know, you got there's all kinds of words for all these things. But the clap is one I just never, it like I've heard it in dozens of movies before and it was not one that in my own personal life I had heard that way because by the time I got to a phase in life when things like sexually transmitted diseases were relevant I was in college and everybody just called it what it what it was which is gonorrhea <laughs> so <laughs> just to hear it that way is so it's so old school but it's so you know like it's just it's humorous in its own way but um you know, it, uh, it it just makes you think about how language, the use of language and, and our, our discussion of medical issues um, of all types has changed in the last 50 years. Um, that's one of the things I like about these 50 year anniversaries that we're going through with Apollo um, is sort of looking back at how things were talked about and how you know, how delicate or indelicate things, certain issues were and how if you read like a debriefing from the crew, if you read through those, you'll see just how um, crude sometimes the conversation can be. I've read through one in particular, and it's not that it was crude, but um, it was the, I think it's after Gemini 5, and I was reading it for looking at how they did some of their photographic work, but just their language, it's basically a transcript of the whole experience of debriefing, and just like, that's them in the raw, that is not, that's not a sanitized television version of these people, and it's just fascinating <laughs> to see, like, how they talked to each other, how they talked to the doctors, how they talked to the NASA managers, you know, how they talked to each other, it is very different. Now, this Apollo 13 crew, they're sort of all-American type boys, it seems, you know, but clearly they're they're pilots and they have a language of their own and there's something that's you know sort of a common experience and some of these uh sexually transmitted diseases were probably part of that and certainly were familiar to those in the military i think um as these guys all would have been so um yeah so kind of an unusual crossover and and kind of uh you get to see the flip side when you read those debriefings a little bit to see just how um, how life was it's not for the faint of heart in some instances for sure <laughs> yeah and and i think it also plays on uh the the idea of, of swigert being a uh, a bachelor and uh, it wasn't it wasn't helping his situation <laughs> for, 
uh, yeah. or, or his reputation. Yeah, I mean, I know the jokes were out there. They're brought up in the movie. It's this sort of idea that he was going to take, what was it, um, uh, the Dick Cavett portion, right? Talks yeah. about how he's going to take chocolate bars and leave out. Nylons. Nylons, yeah. I think. Nylons. Yeah. Talk about <laughs> World War II humor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much uh, so. It's a, yeah, it's a kind of it's a just it's a kind of a fun throwback in a way. Like you know, again, I'm you know not shy about saying this is not part of my living memory. Um, I get to relive it through things like this, and so this movie definitely has a um, quality of, of of sort of setting a stage in a way to think about what happened. Um, like I mentioned on the last minute, the fact that I'd gotten to hear, um, and I, I think you guys, if I'm not mistaken, may have had one of the astronauts on your, uh, on this podcast, but to, to ha- hear from the, the crew and we've had the entire, we had, um, we had Lovell Hayes, Mattingly and Gene Krantz at the museum one time for one of our lectures to hear them present it it just comes alive in a new way it's just it, it's amazing to and i would encourage people if you've never seen that particular recording i believe it's on the museum's youtube page um to go and watch i think it's a john glenn lecture from probably around 2009 or so um but to watch those guys interact with each other uh is really special it's like watching the apollo 8 crew interact with each other yeah, it's and, and really it, the most amazing thing with all of them to me is that they are the real deal. This is exactly how they, they're not putting on an act. This is no. how they really are between each other. They are they're humble, but they are forthright at the same time. They're very, you know, they they tell you how how they look at things. And um, it's such a it, we live in such an amazing time, even here, 50 years after Apollo 13, these heroic people are still in our midst and and the idea that you know we still have the ability to ask them questions and talk about their experience is just i feel very fortunate to be part of all of this yeah it's been a really obviously and i know chris chris and i have talked about this uh multiple times is the opportunity to get to know um some of these folks or at least be exposed to them and to see them in that in that um in their element, you know, sort of around the objects, around the the things that were important to them in those moments, but also with each other. I think it's, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about, um, and Chris knows I have a particular attachment to not only Apollo 8, but Apollo 15, um, those crews. But the thing I've always really enjoyed about the, the composition of the sort of Jim Lovell and Gene Krantz dynamic is the fact that these are two Midwestern guys. And I really dig that. I <laughs> being from Michigan, I, I was born in the same city as Gene Krantz in Toledo. Um, so I very much identify with his very direct, um, forthright kind of that approach to life to not pulling punches that you I, I, I probably come off as undiplomatic most times in <laughs> in my conversations because I, I don't feel I don't mince words you know it's just I don't it's a very efficient way of communicating and so watching that dynamic at play in these kinds of scenarios with these guys I just really appreciate it maybe that's one of the reasons I, I've I've my way of thinking just syncs so well with human spaceflight is that there's not a time to like this is not the time to hide what's going on you have to if you're if your commander is there worried about you you're gonna have to break down and tell them what's wrong with you you can't just hide it um, because that's dangerous for everybody 
Um, so clearly, you know, Hayes has to kind of give it up. You know, he's got to tell the whole truth of what he thinks is wrong. Um, what's really creepy, and I know we talked about this a little bit earlier, is the fact that what he's describing is real. The, the, the symptoms he's having very well could have been the clap. I mean, it's not that far <laughs> off. It also could easily be just that he's dehydrated. Um, that's the most logical thing here. Um, and so Jim very rightly kind of goes, you know, went to the thing of, you know, what's the most logical answer to your problem? Um, and it's just, it's a very quietly, um, it's a very quiet moment as a sort of leader. You can see that he's, you know, he's concerned for his colleague, his friend, but they've got to solve the problem. They can't be, they can't be delicate about what's going on. They have to just kind of get to the issue. Yeah. It's uh, a, no matter how many times I watch this movie, I'm still, I still can't help but be impressed by how proficient they are at their work and how, like like Gene Cran said, uh, competent and you know tough and competent. You have you have to be this if you're going to get back alive. Uh, it, it's so uplifting just just knowing that this is how this is how they made it back alive. Um, and, and even just this little this little minute where he's discussing whether or not he has the clap. Um, <laughs> I uh, it's yeah it's very very impressive. Um, yeah. Well, this is. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it's. I have to say, it's a really sweet moment too. In that, you know, if you've seen Hayes and Lovell together in real life, um, you've this this one of the things that has always amazed me about this, and one of the things I took away from the time I've heard Fred Hayes in particular talk about the differences between real life and the movie, is the fact that the, these this is all sincere. This is a very real. Uh, depiction of their relationship of i mean and the fact that these guys worked as hard as they did to come up with you know to to have to know these people and be able to carry off something that really like looks real on screen and was real in real life is um it's very impressive and i as much as we can you know we kind of like laugh a little bit about the job of actors it is a an incredible skill to be able to replicate something that is that um that small you know that sort of like human emotion and connection that these guys had um it, it i'm i'm always amazed at how little fred hayes seems to criticize the movie it's like <laughs> really like there has to be something because you always assume that there's just added something you know like we want to make it like seem worse than it really was or and there's a little bit of that but I think this sort of the relationships and the um, connections between them, the friendships, um, the um, the real care that they had for each other and concern they had for each other was very legitimately portrayed. Yeah, I mean, we're we're going to be coming up to uh, an issue next week that, uh, as far as I can tell, is this is the farthest thing away from the truth for uh, for Apollo thirteen. Uh, but that, but as uh, Fred said earlier on our show that they needed it to increase the drama on this. Otherwise it would be more of a documentary, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, he said it was it, the way he understood it, it was there just to, to increase the drama. But uh, the way these guys are such competent and professional uh, folks, it's uh, it's hard to picture them being any way else, especially when, like you said, meeting them in real life, they're just like this all the time. Just, yeah. Uh, I had the opportunity a few years ago to interview Jeffrey Kluger, who of course um, helped write in the writing of these stories, the actual, the book versions of the stories. And, um, and that's exactly his sort of take on this is just, you know, how these are 
thankfully, um, very sincere individuals who um, told this in a, you know, it wasn't like there was any, there's no mystery in a way to how it all unfolded. There's not any reason to cover anything up. There's not, a, you know, like this isn't, um, again, it's this idea of them being just very forthright, straightforward kind of um direct people that they tell the story this way and that the movie could pull that off so well um i think is a credit to to them um in being able to kind of then recreate it but or to them as individuals but then the filmmakers and ron howard and everybody to be able to carry that across onto screen with minimal um modification is pretty impressive yeah it uh it it, it never never ceases to amaze how <laughs> how close this how much of a documentary this is mm-hmm. i i'm i'm glad but it it makes it uh it makes it difficult for us because we try <laughs> to find out well what's the difference between what's really happening and what's going on but most of this is pretty well how it all happened i remember i was driving uh i i i had an evening where they almost caused me to wreck a golf cart uh we had them here at the air show and i was driving um jim lovell and fred hayes home that evening and Jim Lovell's sitting next to me. Fred Hayes is sitting on the back of the golf cart. And obviously, like, the sun had gone down because they were our th- <clears throat> our evening uh, presenters. So I'm driving them across an airport on a golf cart to the hotel. And, you know, they were, they were amazed at the turnout of people who came to hear them talk. And they were kind of chuckling. And they're like, can you believe that many people, you know, showed up over our little Apollo 13 mission? And they're just kind of laughing. And as they're talking, and they're just kind of talking like Jim's talking over his shoulder, and like he called him Freddo, which I kind of giggled inside about. Like he called him Freddo, that's really awesome. And then Jim's talking, and he just holds his thumb up and covers the moon, like he does in the movie. And I almost wrecked the golf cart watching that. I'm just like, <laughs> like oh my god, like he really does that, <laughs> you know, like just those little tiny details and stuff like that yeah that's that's what i was saying again back when we talked about the the scene in his son's bedroom and just like the backgrounds of all of the spacecraft interior work and like the netting and i'm noticing in just all of these moments it just feels like like it's really there and um it's a credit to everybody involved not only on the real side of it but also on the movie making side that um that they that they're was inherent emotion and ability to connect with the story that they didn't need to fake. You know, they didn't need to create artificially a whole lot of drama for us to really feel like invested in the story. Um, And remembering that this movie came out when I was in, I was, what month did it come out? I'm not even sure. It's 95. Uh not sure i think it's in the fall okay so it would have been around the time i would have started uh as an undergraduate um knowing sort of where i was how i was looking at the space program in the mid 90s um this was a great way to sort of reintroduce an entire generation to that excitement um and I, i i as i i say all the time and i know it drives probably drives jim crazy but you know this is this the reality of this is not within my personal memory and so i rely on these moments and always have to really make me feel connected to it it's the same way i feel connected because of where i grew up i grew up just north of toledo ohio in michigan but i watched all these toledo television stations as a kid and who was the guy in the 1980s who would have represented government in a sense in the state of Ohio and it was John Glenn Glenn, and so how can you not know you know like how do you not connect with that and so 
you know, it, from 95 till Glenn flew a few years later on the space shuttle was really sort of my, a little bit of a reawakening for me of thinking about space and about, you know, sort of the excitement of it and the wonder of it all. And it's just, it was just this sort of um, kind of really interesting period where I think um, NASA got a little bit of a shot in the arm of excitement again about being, you know, thinking about space travel and, um, and certainly, you know, um, doing a movie like this around a subject that, um, from what I understand, a lot of people didn't really, um, I don't want to say they didn't remember. It's just that it kind of went dormant for a while. The story didn't get a lot of notice for a long time. Well, it was um, a, gen a generation had gone by yeah. in 95. And I'm, I'm, I must correct myself. It was June 30th, 1995 at okay. the premiere. So Thank it was you. a summer movie. And uh, the... You know, a generation had gone by without seeing the moon. There, there's, I mean, yeah. you have you have not lived in a time when when human beings walked on the moon. Right. And I realized I was, I was of a generation that had seen the last. As I keep telling Chris, I, I was the last <laughs> one to see a full moon because they took some of it back with them. But uh, the, you know, this whole idea of going from the Earth to the moon is unknown to there's more there's more people on earth who have never seen anybody walking on the moon than were of my generation who saw people yeah. going to the moon walking around driving on it and you know golfing on it <laughs> so i i look forward to those days again because my you know the, i'm a boomer so all the the baby boomers were all promised we'd be you know we'd be vacationing on mars and things when we were kids we we're gonna we're gonna go to the moon then go to mars and then it'll be like uh 2001 you know pan am space clippers and things <laughs> that that never happened but there's this week as as we're talking we had 500 people in space so far this is we're up to having 500 people and i'm hoping that you know if 10 years go by i hope we have a thousand people in space and maybe we'll have hundreds of people at a time off the planet by the you know by the as 10 years go by i would love to see that but it was movies like this like apollo 13 in getting getting that uh that interest back up i mean it, this came out in the middle of you know this, the space shuttle was at its peak going yeah. back and going back and forth we're having every two or three weeks we're having another shuttle launch but it didn't inspire people the way that the apollo missions did and seeing human beings overcoming the most terrible uh, straits of getting, you know, getting there and getting back. Uh, I think this kind of rekindled that, as he said, getting the idea that we're bigger than just Earth orbit. Yeah. And you have this, and I think I'm, I'm well suited. And I think Chris, you know, probably would agree with this is that, you know, my generation not didn't have um, the Gen X group didn't have real space flight necessarily. We had the shuttle, but it was something that was a little bit in the background. Um, under until we were all in like early in elementary school or late in elementary school and we saw we all sat in front of a tv screen and watched the loss of challenger um you know we really relied on science fiction and science fan you know science fiction fantasy type films like star wars and if you yep. talk to engineers today people who are of gen x who are working at nasa and spacex and these kinds of companies they're going to tell you that their original inspiration for wanting to be a part of that industry or this this world of spaceflight really comes from that from that experience, from having grown up on that material, um, and then this comes back in and sort of early in our adult lives, um, this film comes in and sort of like makes it real again. It's not just about the fantasy world; it's about the real world. It's about what we can actually achieve, and so seeing this sort of 
um, successful failure kind of an experience, I think, gives us uh, as Gen X a bit of a reality check on that fantasy world. Um, but it gives us, I think it's, I actually think the Apollo 13 mission may well be, um, and the movie itself may well be one of the best commentaries on Gen X in that um, we we work very, very hard. We are very good, you know, we're, we're very hardworking type group. Um, we don't get a lot of notice. We don't get a lot of acclaim. We're not out, you know, we're not necessarily out there um, for the, you know, glitz and glamour side of it. We get overlooked for those millennials over there. Um, <laughs> but there's an earnestness and sort of what we're trying to do. And uh, a successful failure might be <laughs> a good way of looking at us in yeah, some ways. Yeah. Is that you're, we, you're all survivors. Yeah, <laughs> we're survivors in a way. We've gone through some really unique periods. And, and as children, we watched a, you know, a space shuttle go up in flames, basically, or come down in flames uh, to some degree. And then our, um, you know, we have this. And then we've got um, in our sort of early independent adulthood, we've got 9-11 and we've got um, the loss of Columbia and so it's it's marked by these really unusual experiences around spaceflight and um, you know it, it, I think but I think it has still it, it pushes people like in my generation like an Elon Musk or um, Jeff Bezos even I guess is probably a Gen Xer or, or a, 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 an early Gen Xer um, you know, we're the ones that have these sort of fantasy ideas about the wonder that spaceflight is, but an earnestness about achieving it that comes from a different source, you know, so there's this, yeah. there's this balance and it, it's similar to that balance that probably existed in the forties, probably more like the fifties, which is there's this sort of real fantasy of Buck Rogers and Destination Moon and all of that stuff. But, you know, ours, ours balances on the reality of the moon landings. And so it's a different, we started from a different frame of mind. So, um, yeah, I love this as a sort of turning point for uh, understanding spaceflight for my generation in particular. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll have uh, many more artifacts for you to uh, curate in uh, in your museum. Yes. <laughs> Maybe a lots more expansion ahead. Yes, hopefully. Uh, but, but uh, Jennifer, thank you again so much for being on our show. You are always a gem in our, uh, <laughs> in, our in our schedule, and uh, you're very you're very easy to talk to oh. about many things, in, including uh, including the clap and in, in urine collection. <laughs> so thank you. That's Who a thought? for me. I've talked to Jen about a lot of stuff. Never any of those items. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to go to the experts. That's the thing. So, right. Uh, uh, you know, and as a mother, you know all these things. I know. It's, uh, yeah, you hear. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm a mother of two boys, and so in my oh, house, my I'm the only. <laughs> girl and so i know all those details that i never yeah. wanted to know before <laughs> yep wow well thank thank you for the this uh revelations about urine collection um but no problem uh well well for folks who have missed any of our previous wonderful episodes uh go check out uh our main site apollo 13 minute.com apollo 13 minute.com uh talk back with us on the social media we're always available on uh, our big site on uh, facebook apollo 13 minute mission control and on twitter at apollo 13 minute uh you can always subscribe to us on uh, the big pod catchers out there like uh uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or TuneIn or Spotify or all those other ones. Um, but we will join join us here next week. Who knows we'll be, who will be on here as we get into uh, some uh, some of the drama that we were talking about earlier. But we'll be here next week. Looks like we're coming up on Lost of Signal in about 30 seconds. So we'll see you here next time. Have a great weekend. We'll see you here Monday on the Apollo 13 Minute.